Welcome to Feed the Feminine, a podcast dedicated to reviving archetypal feminine qualities in a masculine-dominated culture. I'm your host, Vanessa Sedaducato, a psychotherapist and writer empowering clients and readers to nourish their feminine while also repairing what's been damaged in its long-standing cultural repression. Join me each episode as we talk about the archetypes present in how we eat, express, and relate, and what we can do to find meaning and reach balance. On this episode, I am reading an essay I wrote about my own onset of depression, suicidal thoughts, and the meaning that I've been able to create from it these last 12 years. As always, before we dive in, a quick disclaimer. The information provided here is intended to convey general information only and does not intend to replace or infer proper psychological diagnosis. No therapist-client relationship is implied or actualized through any contact with this podcast, website, or its creators unless formally agreed upon in a proper clinical setting. And now, without further ado, here's this week's episode of the Feed the Feminine podcast. So this episode, in part, is... Inspired by a podcast episode I recently listened to by an old friend from college. His name is Clifford, and we met a lifetime ago at the University of Bridgeport for a pretty short period of time before I transferred to Hofstra University, which is where the story that I'm about to share begins. Uh, Clifford's podcast episode discussed his relationship with alcohol and suicidal thoughts, And while I've touched on my own experiences of depression in previous podcast episodes and blog posts, uh, I always found myself editing how much I would share to some degree. And there are a lot of different reasons for that. One is that even though I know how serious my experiences were for me, I tend to compare myself to people a lot of the time. And I think I just never really legitimized my own experience. But but I also think as a therapist, I'm trained to not really self-disclose. And uh, as I continue to navigate my own journey as a therapist and reconnect differently with clients throughout that journey, I think I'm realizing how important it is to share these experiences um, and also share what I was able to learn from these painful moments. And so I decided that especially as a therapist, sharing the full range of my depression, my suicidal thoughts, and the lessons that I got to learn simply from hanging on for dear life could be helpful to somebody. Of course, this isn't the full story of my depression. There have been other pockets in my life in which I got very, very lost. But the story that I'm about to read is of the first time depression came for me when I had no context for it, no way to expect it at all. And the really beautiful gift that I received from it years later. I believe that this life that we live is an ongoing education and there will be times when we feel like we have hit the end of it. But I can tell you that despite still struggling with depression, I've never been more grateful uh, than to sit here and read the story to you. To still be standing, to be sharing this, to be helping other people who've been through something similar is really important to me to have found meaning in my experience a meaning so powerful that it could take the hollow experience of depression and give it life so deep uh, is hard to even believe you can check out my friend clifford's podcast episode by finding him on instagram at galt's conditioning 
And the name of his podcast is The Pulse, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all of the your favorite podcast platforms. And I'll link it um, in the description of this podcast episode on my blog and on Instagram. Obviously, there are trigger warnings for what I'm about to read as I discuss depression and suicidal thoughts. But I also move into the evolution of that experience and how I was able to rediscover myself. So please prepare yourself accordingly. And please know that if you are feeling depressed or suicidal, there are people who understand, there are people who care, and there are people who can help. And if you feel that you need somebody to talk to right now, or at any point throughout listening to this episode, you can get free and confidential support 24 hours a day, seven days a week by calling the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. And that phone number is 1-800-273-8255. And so let us begin. When David Foster Wallace wrote about the, quote, psychotically depressed person, he made it clear that such an emotionally tumultuous state of existence had nothing to do with whether or not life's assets and debits squared. That hopelessness comes not from whether we're allowed the privilege of getting what we want in life, but from being swallowed up by some larger force that makes everything we thought we knew unrecognizable. Wallace, the author known well for his depression and eventual death by suicide, equated the choice of killing oneself to standing at a window at the edge of a burning building, deciding whether or not to submit to the smoke or to jump. His thoughts on the matter rang loudly in my ear as I, at 21, stood at the literal window of my college dorm room feeling as though I was metaphorically choking on the smoke he described. If I was now so broken, which I believed I was, and this was how my existence would feel from now on, I simply had to choose. Five days prior to that moment, I began hiding out in my dorm room. I was overcome with emotions so intense they knocked my nervous system offline. In hindsight, I compared my anesthetized state of being to the nerve damage one might sustain from a third-degree burn. The world, and the life I had built within it, was suddenly filled with monsters lurking behind every corner. Facing it seemed futile. I neither had the energy nor the desire to fight for what was mine. I became dissociated from myself and faded away into a pit of abusive self-talk and neglect. Using words to describe depression never really seemed to do the trick, so I'll paint the picture of how it looked instead. I spent five days pacing the floors, standing still in dissociative states, lying atop piles of dirty clothes that I couldn't bring myself to collect from my bed and place in my hamper. I didn't eat. I only slept to the accompaniment of heavy metal blasting in my ears through my professional-grade headphones so as to silence the layers of ruminating thoughts and self-hatred that spiraled in my mind for days on end. Shut up, I would scream at myself while tapping my temple with a closed fist. I couldn't understand how my mind could even be so active when my body felt like it was bleeding out. Call the counseling center, I'd demand of myself, only to be met with another voice, a cruel one that said, no, counseling is for people with actual problems. You're just a failure who doesn't deserve help. I had always been the person in my social circles who provided the advice. I was the listener the non-judgmental friend you could spill your deepest, darkest thoughts to. And I wondered why I could be so helpful to others, but couldn't take care of myself. I couldn't let anyone else help me either. My depression, while I have since, a decade later, come to discover actually has good intentions, 
is akin to an abusive partner who doesn't want anyone from the outside to penetrate the seal of isolation. For if someone else would have seen my five-day-long passive attempt at dying, they would have tried to bring me into their reality without understanding mine. They would have tried to fact-check me instead of understanding how righteous my self-hating mind was. They would have wanted me to get help that I felt nowhere near worthy of. They would have wanted to save me when I simply deserved to die. That's the depressive mind. It isolates you and makes you the villain of your own tale. Every misstep, every mistake, every failure, dead end, and even every success becomes evidence of your own vile infliction on the world. And so to keep me isolated, even while utterly dissociated, my ego worked strategically to ensure no one came close. I IM'd my friends just enough information to keep them from looking for me. I schemed only to slink down the hall to the bathroom in the middle of the night when I was sure not to run into another soul. I was being held captive by an emotional illness who managed to recruit my ego to execute its missions. As the days went on and I avoided, or quite frankly forgot about, work, school, and my responsibilities at the school radio station, the pain and hatred I held toward myself faded to nothingness. And somehow that was worse. The numbness became so intense it actually took on a sensation, like the booming silence of a peaceful snowstorm that is so silent it somehow has a sound. And the only desire left in my bones was to die. So I stood at the window of my dorm room and overlooked the sea of trees that, up until that point, had always filled me with joy. From the moment I moved into that room, I fell in love with those trees. I decorated my room as to frame the window like an art piece that I hardly ever took my eyes off. And yet there, in that moment, looking over them, I felt nothing. I stood at that window for a length of time I have no concept of, knowing it was my last attempt at living. I felt a ticking clock. Five days of fading away meant I only had a small amount of time remaining before I ceased to exist entirely. So I stared at the trees, and I begged them to mean something to me again. For if they didn't, I would be done. Please make me feel something again, I sighed. Please, I'll take sadness or anger or grief. Just please give me a feeling again. And somehow, like a movie... The next thing I remember was sitting at my desk with a ringing phone to my ear. I don't remember dialing. I don't even remember walking to my desk, but there I was, about to face my first human voice in almost an entire week. Saltzman Counseling Center, how can I help you? A warm and kind voice answered. I think I need to talk to someone, I said, matter-of-factly with no frill or conversational prowess. Okay, hold on just a moment. Don't go anywhere. She placed me on hold and the floodgates opened. My throat contracted, my chest caved in, every emotion accessible to the human condition came rushing through my nervous system, and I began to sob. We have an opening in an hour, do you think you can make it? She asked. I couldn't handle how kind she was to me. I'd convinced myself I didn't deserve it, but my God did I crave it so deeply. Yes, I answered signing myself up for therapy without even realizing it. When I hung up, I slowly scanned my room for any clothes that seemed remotely clean. I shoved my unshowered body into them through my greasy hair in a ponytail and squirmed down to my car. I didn't want to risk running into anyone. 
When I arrived for my appointment, likely early on account of having no context of what day or time it was, I filled out some paperwork. Of course, not knowing then what I know now, I lied about the questions about suicidal thoughts out of fear that they would institutionalize me. And when a kind lady named Colby came out to get me from the waiting room, my mind took a snapshot of her, sensing, hoping, that the next 50 minutes would alter everything that came next. After Colby reviewed my paperwork and delivered her spiel about informed consent, she asked me why I'd come. Once again, the floodgates opened and I couldn't squeak out any words in between the sobbing. I remember the way she scrunched up her lips as if to really empathize with how much I was suffering. No one had ever seen me in so much pain before. That made me feel less alone. To help contain me, Colby would sometimes finish the sentences I wasn't able to find the words for. I was shocked to hear the darkest echoes of my mind out loud, and even more shocked to realize it was okay to be thinking those thoughts, but that I also deserved to be kinder to myself. I left that session with relief. Relief that maybe I could survive after all, and that survival didn't need to be some desperate attempt to stay alive, but actually something pleasant. When I returned to my dorm room, I sat down on my laptop and saw a series of tabs open on the screen. I was so confused. I remembered how lost in the abyss I was the last time I sat at that desk just a few hours prior, not even remembering how I got there. But seeing the tabs open on my screen was evidence of the series of logical steps I have no recollection of taking to locate the phone number to the student counseling center. Had I blacked out during that period of time? How could I have been so severely dissociated with still a functioning enough ego to pull this off, to do this research, to find this phone number? I didn't know, and it didn't matter. Somehow, I had survived the ordeal, and now I had a therapist to help me navigate what would come next. Several years after that, I sat in a different therapist's office, giving some brief overview of that experience. His name was Brian. Who was it, he asked. What part of you was it that begged for the trees to mean something to you again? I don't know, I replied. It was just some flicker left in me, a dying pilot light in an otherwise dark and cold room, the last remaining piece of me that desperately needed me to come back to myself. He wanted to know more, but didn't press. He simply said, well, I hope we get to know who that was because we're going to need to feed that part of you. We're going to want to strengthen it and keep it around. And then, about one year after that conversation, I found myself standing inside the house of what I was pretty convinced was a cult. <laughs> the historic building was nearly regal, the security tight, the offerings free, and everyone inside was suspiciously nice. These are the red flags of a cult as I know them, and it wasn't until I was behind closed doors that I realized how little I knew about this place. In the white Renaissance mansion, I stood awkwardly, giving a strange man my name. Come with me into the main dining hall for a group meditation, he said. Sure, but I was really just interested in exploring the labyrinth in the garden, I replied with some semblance of caution. I've never been one to turn down a free opportunity to meditate, but the way in which I was being corralled into a strange corner room was a little off-putting. Yes, you may explore the labyrinth after the meditation and after you receive a tour of the grounds from one of our members, he said. It seemed a little controlling, but I admit, I really was intrigued by the labyrinth, which I had found through a quick Google search was open to the public during certain hours of the day for spiritual meandering. 
When I signed up online, all they required of me was my name and some ballpark of a time that I might arrive, and it was just the degree of disclosure and commitment I'm comfortable with. Walking a labyrinth has long intrigued me, mostly because it's always sounded quite absurd and dizzying. I understand its intention, a meditation in motion that invites your inner experience to match your outer one. Walking the spiral path toward its narrow center is meant to mirror a state of inward awareness, and following the trail back out to its outer rim mirrors returning to the outside world. But while that seems to make some kind of sense, walking the path of a circular spiral laid out on the ground seemed more like a means to achieve motion sickness than inner peace, and I wanted to find out for myself. But first, involuntary meditation. I walked into the main dining room as I was told, suspicious and looking for some new friends that I could make eyes at, and the event things went south. The room was elegant, the ceilings tall, the furniture mahogany. A gentleman entered the room. He had silver hair and a short but stern stature. He asked us to close our eyes. I did, except that I kept one metaphorical eye open for the sake of safety. Of course, the objective of meditating is to quiet the ego, but the ego must first feel safe, and I wasn't so sure. I kept thinking, what a perfect scheme. Lure in the spiritually curious with the labyrinth, force them into a meditation, and insert the subliminal messaging. (laughs) As he moved about the room guiding our journey, I tracked his voice. I would tense up when he got closer to me, but I would open one eye to check on him when I felt him further away. Nothing about his approach seemed sinister, and I slowly started to lean into my breath. And now I want you to imagine someone you feel unconditional love for, he said. Unconditional love was never more clear to me than with my dog, Lacey, whom I pictured right away. She'd died a few years back, but was and remains the easiest trigger for all of the warm and fuzzies associated with unconditional love. As a dog, she didn't come with the baggage of ongoing compounding trauma that commonly plagues human friendships. As my closest friend, she knew all of my secrets and never held them against me. Now take that feeling of unconditional love as it swells in your body and turn it toward yourself. This made the meditation come to a halt with a record scratch in my mind. What would that even look like? How would I apply those lacy warm and fuzzies to myself? I'm not worthy of that. It feels so weird to give myself that. I know so many terrible things about myself. Besides, what would I do with all the extra energy if I wasn't beating myself up day after day? I couldn't even fathom self-love. My whole mind faded to black as soon as he mentioned it. Like speaking Russian or solving a Rubik's Cube, I had no concept of how to even begin. But as the internal inquiry persisted, I sunk back down into the meditation, forgetting all about the possible cult threats, and even without the labyrinth's help yet, I spiraled inward. And what I found was a little creature swimming about in my psyche. She was vibrant and colorful, faceless, but her body indicated pure bliss. Her energy read, there are no problems here, no problems at all. She was mermaid-like, but full of life and abundance and calm. She felt so familiar to me, and yet I had never consciously known her before. She was beautiful, both in the way she flowed through me without worry, and the way she continued to love me even when I tried to outsmart her with ego-driven things worth worrying about. You know I'm kind of sucking at life right now. I'm out of work. I have no money. Do you still love me? I asked her in my mind. Yep, money is an illusion. 
What if I don't find a job and I lose my apartment? Well, being homeless doesn't mean I won't love you. Things will work themselves out. And what if they don't? They will. Maybe not the way you think they should, but they will. Nothing is wrong. Keep breathing. What if whatever will fix this doesn't happen fast enough? Whatever happens, whenever it happens, it doesn't mean you're bad or wrong or unworthy of love. If my catastrophizing was rain, she was the waterproof umbrella letting every drop roll right off her. I liked that I could suddenly tap into that narrative in my mind. Thirty years of doubt and fear and self-blame surely was getting old. But talking to her transported me back to Brian's office, and that moment when he asked me about the part of myself that had managed to keep me alive. It was her. She was the spark. She was the one who begged the trees to bring me back to life because my depression buried her too deep. She was the dying pilot light in an otherwise dark and cold room. I had finally met her. And there, in that so-perfect-it's-creepy dining room, during a meditation I started out refusing to melt into, I began to cry with gratitude. It was the best gift I had ever received to meet her, to know her, to feel her unconditional love for me, and to finally, after so many years, thank her for saving my life. I did eventually get to take that meaningful insight out to the labyrinth, but as I suspected, I just felt dizzy as I followed the curves laid out on the ground, trying to place one foot in front of the other. I walked it twice just to be sure I wasn't doing it wrong, But instead of a walking meditation, I just kept thinking, don't fall over, don't fall over, don't fall over. Naturally, my inner monologue would be one of criticism and expected failure. Even the fact that I walked the labyrinth twice to make up for any wrongdoings I may have committed the first time is a reflection of why it was so difficult for me to access self-love during that meditation. It's a complicated, confusing spiral maze towards self-compassion, and it was only when I showed up to walk that maze that I found that guide I've been needing to help me walk it in the first place. The story isn't meant to have a happy ending, per se. At least not the kind of ending that says, and then all of our problems vanished forever. Depression still lives and breathes in me. It makes getting out of bed a Herculean task more days than I would care to admit. But I'm in conversation with it now. I've grown to understand it a bit more. And even more than that, I've grown to love it because I learned that it only had my best intentions in mind. My depression was a means of protecting me once upon a time, but it became too big and powerful, and it lost its purpose. It became this 80-pound dog that wants to sit on my lap and love me and protect me. It just has no idea that it's hurting me, digging its bones into my thighs and cutting off my air supply. So I just have to remind it to back off sometimes and remind myself that I am more powerful than it. It isn't easy. It's like walking a labyrinth every day of my life, trying not to trip over my own feet, avoiding dizziness on the path to meaning and hoping for some real resolution someday, and trying to love myself in the process. But even though I get motion sickness more often than not, it's a labyrinth I'm happy to still get the chance to walk. When I returned home that day after walking the labyrinth, I rushed to put her on paper to take the image of her from my mind and turn it into something I could understand a little bit more. And as I saw her develop on the page, I wept having come face to face with the part of me that was responsible for me still being here. It was like meeting the paramedic that saved your life after an accident. 
Only the one that saved my life was a part of me. She's always been with me. I just never knew she was there until that day. And if you're actually interested in seeing what she looks like, I have a picture of that painting available at thehungryfeminine.com slash blog. Thank you for listening. And if you would like to learn, discuss, or explore more, you can follow me on Instagram at thehungryfeminine and visit thehungryfeminine.com for more content about mental health. See you next time.